This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Richard Osijo, a host on New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Joining me today is Jan Döring, Assistant Professor of Sociology at McGill University. And today he's going to talk about his recent book, Us Versus Them, Race, Crime and Gentrification in Chicago Neighborhoods, about how people and organizations invoke notions of race as they negotiate the politics of crime and gentrification in today's city. Uh, and he bases this on three years of fieldwork in two neighborhoods in Chicago, Rogers Park and Uptown, with a focus on two different groups of residents, those who advocate for public safety and those who advocate for social justice in these neighborhoods undergoing uh, transition. So Jan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Richard. Yeah, great. So I was wondering if you could start by uh, just telling us a bit about your background, where you're from, where you studied, and how you came to conduct the research for this book. Right. So now, uh, as you said, I'm an assistant professor of sociology at McGill, and I received my PhD from the University of Chicago. And the book emerges out of the dissertation uh, that I wrote uh, to graduate from the University of Chicago. Uh, I'm originally from Germany. Um, I've always been interested in race and ethnicity in various contexts and uh, uh, shapes, uh, but I wasn't really coming to the United States to study race. It just sort of imposed itself on me. And then um, I uh, got very deeply into that topic at the University of Chicago and decided that it's something that I wanted to study. And my um, my methodological uh, background is um, interpretivism and hermeneutics, and so I'm very interested in meaning making. And so I was I was trying to find a site in which I would find a lot of micro interactions in which people would negotiate race, and perhaps in which uh, racial conflicts might have to be negotiated. And um, I tried out a few sites um, in exploratory fieldwork, and these racially diverse neighborhoods, Rogers Park and Uptown that you mentioned were the ones that I eventually settled on to conduct a study. Yeah, cool. So now you start the book with a very intriguing scene. You have a group of mostly white residents in Rogers Park who go out one night around their neighborhood for some what you call positive loitering. Uh, they, they walk around looking to deter and uh, report suspicious activity and to just signal to people that they're not going to tolerate street crime. They're out there and they're, they're watching. So we're going to get to positive learning a little later on, but, but here in this episode, they have a brief encounter with a group of black residents who are hanging out and they're awkwardly staring at them. And that group starts yelling, Trayvon Martin, uh, the young black boy who had been recently murdered at the time. Um, so, so just tell us a bit about these folks, this pub, this group of public safety advocates. They're the one of the groups that you focus on in the book. And then the social justice advocates who aren't in this episode, but are the other group that you uh, focused on. 
Right. So, yes. So people generally fell into these two camps that, that you mentioned, the people who were mostly worried about crime and public safety. They called themselves public safety activists because that was the goal that they strove for. And I'm just taking that uh, as the language that they used them, themselves. And the other camp consisted of people who were essentially arguing that these efforts to reduce crime and gang violence and disorder were ultimately just covert or even even just barely covert um, gentrification strategies. So those that that camp very much opposed public safety initiatives and very much pushed political leader, leaders, housing developers, and uh, people like that to uh, to to uh, fend off gentrification by building more affordable housing or by preventing housing turnover. And these groups um, in those two camps, uh, public safety and social justice, they existed in a variety of different forms. But for me as an, an, an ethnographer, one of the most interesting forms were these positive loitering groups because I would go out with them typically at night and walk around the neighborhood and I could watch them as they, first of all, um, mulled over their whiteness or not, right? What, what it would mean for people to be mostly white in a racially diverse neighborhood and to police that neighborhood on your own and uh, to decide when you must call the police, when it's when it's warranted to call the police, uh, who is likely a gang member and who is not. And the group that I'm studying the the book with uh, was very much on the side of uh, uh, of uh, false positives, very heavily and unabashedly. So they essentially thought that most of the people who were black and who they encountered in public in the evening were gang members. And so their their goal was really to sent them home or if they saw them doing something slightly illegal or uh, uh, provocative to, to call the police in order to control them. But often it's just sufficed when they would stand around and watch them. And in this case, uh, this group of young people just fought back by uh, making a racial claim, right? By, by challenging the, the positive loiterers with, with racism, saying, we know what you guys are doing. You're watching us because we're black. Uh, and perhaps he would even like to go further if you just could do that. And for me, these kinds of situations are situations that I was really interested in because they involve situations of racial le legitimacy, right? When is an action primarily revolving around race? How can it be justified? What is discrediting about it? And how do people respond when they face what I call racial challenges, when, when people push back against them, when they say the behavior that you're currently engaging in it's just unacceptable against the background of the fact that you're white. Yeah. So this, like you mentioned, this is in this episode a bit, some of the, uh, the racial claims making that your participants are engaging in. And the, this becomes very central to uh, the book's analysis, uh, specifically how and when people invoke race and what they hope to accomplish from doing so. Uh, and you just mentioned that there's uh, a type of racial claims making called racial challenges. And the other that you examine here are racial neutralizations. So what, if you could tell us a bit, what are these concepts uh, more specifically? And what are some of the ways, other ways that you saw them used? Yes, so uh, claims making comes out of this, this approach of claims making comes out of uh, constructionist sociology, where we're trying to understand discourse just as a uh, as a set of uh, constructions. Uh, ultimately, in the beginning of the out of the study of social problems, how 
do people produce social problems by framing phenomena in, in certain ways that then warrant some kind of intervention. And I just decided to try to apply that same approach to race because I saw people engaging in that very frequently and having, you know, just having come out of uh, the library and having read um, the, the literature on racial politics and racial conflict, that is actually not something that I found very much. So there's a very large literature on uh, colorblind racism and colorblindness as a defense against charges of racism uh, in sociology. Many folks have studied that, but um, surprisingly racial challenges, so the kinds of actions that people engage in when they want to discredit someone for engaging in racially inappropriate behavior. This is not something that to my knowledge, other sociologists have very much looked at. And then I would also add that um, people overlook a lot of racial neutralizations if they focus only uh, on colorblind rhetoric. Uh, for example, people might have certain counter narratives that uh, portray the, uh, the action that they engaged in in racially benign ways or they could apologize, try to alter their behavior. Um, they can engage in, in all kinds of other maneuvers uh, on top of this, uh, this colorblind rhetoric that we know um, relatively well. And so one of my goals when I analyze all of these situations in which uh, people clash with each other is to look at how do they, how do they phrase, how do they articulate um, the challenges that they forward against other people and organizations that do things that they dislike and how do those people then respond. Um, and my hope is then also to come to some conclusions about um, whether we can predict or at least understand the circumstances under which certain outcomes emerge. So when is a racial challenge successful and when uh, is it unsuccessful? Um, I think this is uh, new in the sociology of race. I hadn't really found um, very much on this there. And um, specifically something that it allows us to do is to um, think not only about um, exchanges between racial groups. So for example, black people charging whites with racism, but racial challenges play out more broadly too. Whites challenge each other over uh, behavior uh, black people challenge each other uh, over racial behavior. For example, I saw uh, in the book uh, people uh, calling their black neighbors Uncle Tom because they would go to community policing meetings and uh, white residents would call out uh, positive loiterers for engaging in racially questionable behavior. And so I think this framework is just a bit more flexible and comprehensive than the tools we've had to, to think about racial discourse before. Right. And the the context here for analyzing racial claims making is especially important because you're dealing with gentrification, with gentrifying neighborhoods. So uh, obviously with racial segregation in neighborhoods, exacerbating inequalities and, and being the predominant residential pattern in the U.S., in more integrating neighborhoods like gentrifying ones then provide these fascinating cases for analyzing a variety of issues surrounding racial conflict. And you write and mentioned a bit earlier that you began this project really with an interest in racial politics, but you realized from hanging out and talking to people that it was crime that was perhaps especially important to them and had emerged in these neighborhoods as a key political issue. So I wonder if you could tell us 
how early on this realization came to you in your fieldwork and what just in general, what some of the discussions in the literature are on crime and neighborhood change that you are engaging with here? Mm. I had this realization quite early. I was looking for ethnographic entry points to start talking to people about issues that they're concerned about. So I spoke to some social workers, um, uh, to residents that I met, and they sometimes had different perspectives on this. But my real exploratory fieldwork began in 2010 when uh, the next uh, wave of aldermanic elections was underway. And so I went to campaign debates. I uh, collected the, the, the flyers that candidates would hand out. And um, I was just talking to people uh, on the street about what is this election about? What, what concerns you and what do you hope to get, get out of it if uh, your candidate is elected? And crime just emerged uh, as a really, really central topic there. Um, for those who prioritize that issue over gentrification, so um, the entire other side of the community, which is essentially denied that crime posed a very big challenge for those neighborhoods at all, we're saying that um, this issue of crime is simply forced on them and is, you know, a covert. Uh, gentrification initiative. So they didn't believe that these fears of crime were sincere. They they thought that they were um, that they were either deliberately racially biased or that they were just revealing racial fears that people might have. And um, I think that is also um, uh, the segue point to the second part of the question that you asked in the in relation to this question of how the literature has thought about neighborhood change. And crime, we know that white residents really um, are tolerant of racial integration only if uh, we keep a very, very close lid on crime and um, they are watching the condition of the neighborhood very carefully, often hoping that it will become more white and that crime will go down. Uh, but crime and gang activity are certainly things that make the situation very uncomfortable for, for many uh, people who move into gentrifying neighborhoods. Uh, and so this is a very hot potato for them where people are considering leaving. So I saw people pack up and sell even at a loss uh, because they were so afraid of raising a family there. Um, and then other people just became these very outspoken activists who were saying, you know, what we have to do is to do everything that we can to make sure that this is a safe neighborhood. And there may be certain costs that come with that, but that is something that we must accept. Right. And and it's important to point out, like you do, uh, that when, when you're discussing people's responses to crime, that you consider their perceptions of crime and not so much the actual crime that's taking place. So as you document, Rogers Park and Uptown have lower crime rates than the Chicago average. But residents still perceive it to be high when they compare it to nearby neighborhoods and perceive it to be something that has been getting worse. And you do a really good job, I think, of contextualizing these perceptions in the historical changes that have occurred in both of these neighborhoods. So if you would, would you tell us what are the origins in these two neighborhoods of the processes that ended up unfolding in the present during your fieldwork? Mm. 
Yeah, um, so these neighborhoods are located on the far north side of Chicago, and that's an area that was very much shielded from uh, black immigration, from, from the great migration of African-Americans from the south to northern cities. Um, and so these neighborhoods stayed white, uh, cohesively white for a very, very long time. Uptown was kind of a bohemian uh, neighborhood uh, uh, that actually uh, reminded me of your book, Upscaling Downtown, and it's now sort of developing in that direction again, an entertainment district where people go to cocktail bars and uh, upscale bars. Um, and Rogers Park used to be a, a Jewish neighborhood for a very long time. Um, but um, these neighborhoods um, lost a lot of population uh, after World War II. Um, they used to have these very big units uh, and um, landlords subdivided them to bring in new tenants. Um, and eventually that made it possible for Puerto Ricans, for African-Americans uh, to move in. There, there's also a large uh, Vietnamese uh, refugee community there, people who fled um, Southeast Asia when the, when the communists won the war there. So these are highly diverse, racially neighborhood, uh, racial, highly racially diverse neighborhoods. Um, their black population is about uh, 20%, but uh, uh, they, they have a lot of other uh, population groups there as well. And um, people, have people have had negative perceptions about those neighborhoods for some time, especially about Uptown. It was kind of known as Skid Row throughout Chicago for some time. Uh, because um, many um, people who had been released uh, from mental health institutions um, were put into Uptown. So Uptown has a, has a tremendous homelessness problem, and there are a lot of homelessness shelters there uh, today uh, still. But these were more, um, you know, for, from the perspective of mainstream residents, these were more quality of life issues. And I think that um, around the 90s, um, real gang activity started in these two neighborhoods. And um, this gang activity really is unusual on Chicago's north side. That's just something that you don't find in other neighborhoods around there. Um, you would sometimes have open air drug markets. Uh, you would have a lot of uh, fighting between uh, gangs within the same neighborhood or uh, other gangs that have close by territories. Um, and um, these conflicts uh, killed about five people in each neighborhood every year on average while I was doing my field work and many more people were shot. So this is something that people were broadly concerned about, even the people who generally said that crime is not the issue that we must care about, but that gentrification is. Because of course, those people recognize that the people who are most likely to be wounded and shot are black and uh, typically low income. So this is one thing that those two camps had in common, their concern about violence in the two neighborhoods. Right. Okay. So to, to put this back then to gentrification, a central argument in the book is how anti-crime initiatives can encourage further gentrification and the further marginalization of uh, existing low income minority residents. And in chapter three, you start that with a, a very vivid example of it in the fight over Lawrence House, which is a rooming house located in Uptown. Uh, tell us a bit what happened with this conflict and some of the other similar conflicts and the racial politics that emerged from them. 
Yeah, Lawrence House is a really interesting case. This is actually, so Uptown used to be the center of the um, Chicago silent movie film industry for a while. And uh, Charlie Chaplin lived at Lawrence House uh, in the 19-teens, I think, um, when he was shooting movies there. So it used to be a really glamorous place, but it sort of went on a decline after World War II. Um, it became a retirement home first, and then later it just became a rooming house where essentially everybody could live uh, on uh, if they paid uh, for a week or a month's rent. And um, this building um, was what residents in these neighborhoods called a problem building. Uh, what they meant by that was that the building was in some fashion assumed to contribute to crime in the neighborhood. So um, uh, this, this was here the case in a variety of ways. They were claiming that they were sex offenders and violent ex-offenders living in the building. Um, the safety activists were claiming that, that is. Um, there was a, there, there was a, a group uh, of gangster disciples hanging out down the block uh, from Lawrence House uh, and dealing drugs there. And uh, allegedly customers would walk into Lawrence House uh, and consume their drugs there. And uh, possibly some of the gang members also lived there. So making uh, life dangerous for the low-income tenants that live there. And so public safety activists started a campaign to turn this building around. The, the neighborhood uh, around that area is really gentrifying really quickly. And, and this is supposed to, you know, this was perceived to be as one of the, one of the burden uh, uh, buildings that, that was preventing the neighborhood from improving on a larger scale. And so they did a variety of things. They systematically called 911 uh, about everything that they could find in relation to the building. For example, it gets very hot there uh, in the summer because uh, the building doesn't have air conditioning for most units. And so residents would sit outside on these milk crates and um, positive loiterers standing outside would then call the police to say that residents are blocking the public way. Um, they went to businesses, close by businesses, to push them to call the police uh, as well. And eventually they sort of acquired this long list of 911 calls that they had produced in part. And they used that as leverage to force the city to do something about the building. So the building sent in uh, building inspectors who found a lot of code violations. And essentially the deal then is uh, for the landlord they have to clean that up, they have to clean up their act, or the case goes to housing court, which can be uh, uh, very costly, and you can lose the building. But the owners, for some reason or other, decided not to make these repairs, but did go to housing court. And so in court, under pressure of losing the building, the owners uh, agreed to sell the building to a developer, and um, all the tenants who were living in the building were evicted, um, the building was got rehabbed and it now targets recently uh, graduated uh, college students. It has a cocktail bar on the first floor, on a coffee shop. It's really quite a, quite a, um, quite a textbook case of gentrification. And what's interesting here from the perspective of politics is that whenever you would ask the public safety activists what they were doing and why they were doing these things, they would say, we're doing this because we care about the residents and we want for everyone to be safer. But now, of course, the tenants don't live there anymore at all, right? So it's, so it's a very different outcome. And I don't want to engage in motive mongering and say what they really wanted is always this outcome. Uh, but I certainly didn't hear any complaints 
uh, from people that this is what happens. Um, and I saw this process that happened at Lawrence House where you call 911 deliberately, repeatedly, then force this housing intervention and then um, get the landlord to sell the building. I saw this four or five times occur in Rogers Park and Uptown. So the safety activists knew what they were doing and they knew the steps that they needed to take in order to get these interventions to happen. And it generally led to the wholesale uh, gentrification of the entire building. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, wow. It's a, it's a really fascinating case. It really kind of encapsulates uh, a lot of what you uh, discuss in the chapter and in, and in the book. So then moving along, the how racial politics plays out in actual electoral politics in these neighborhoods plays an important role, uh, especially how you saw the ways that fear of crime came to be used as a political resource uh, to incite racial strife uh, and in ways that united some residents and divided others. Uh, you mentioned this was something you noticed in the Aldermanic elections early on in your fieldwork. Um, how did you see this, these dynamics play out in the actual electoral politics uh, in these neighborhoods? Yeah, there were, um, so there was, there was widespread discontent and fear of crime among the white residents, although not among all white residents. I should say that many anti-gentrification activists were uh, wide, and maybe we'll talk about this later uh, when we talk uh, about a later chapter where I, where I look at that in more detail. Um, but by and large, people were afraid of crime, uh, specifically white middle-class residents. And so something that I was very interested in was how politicians would deal with this issue of crime in electoral politics, because it has this strong mobilizing potential. You might think that if you run on crime uh, and on gang violence, uh, you can mobilize fearful residents uh, behind you. Um, but at the same time, you also face the risk that you might be portrayed as, uh, as a racist, as somebody who is, who is heightening fears that are actually irrational, that you're dividing people uh, along racial lines by running in this kind of way. And what I found is that people really did do this quite a bit. They did really run on crime a lot. So out of the elections that I looked at, and I looked at um, historical elections in both neighborhoods reaching back approximately 25 years, most elections where, where there was a strong candidate um, challenging an incumbent revolved around crime. So in other words, the, the challenges were invariably claiming that the incumbent was too light on crime. And they really took very shrill um, approaches to doing that. There was one candidate um, who had the series of campaign flyers that just had these bold single words, words, one on each flyer, fear, crime, gangs, vacancy, right? And these are very strong messages. And we know from the uh, political psychology literature that these kinds of messages do have uh, an effect on how people perceive their neighborhood and how they perceive their neighbors. So people do become more afraid of crime uh, as a result. 
Um, but I'm also seeing that um, incumbents uh, could try to resist these campaigns by portraying them as racist. And they would then be faced with the interesting challenge that the campaigns ha had generally no overt signs of racism in them. Uh, of course, the candidates avoided this very carefully. So instead, you would have to find something that resembles a insinuate, you know, that, that resembles uh, um, a possible uh, um, racist uh, claim. Uh, so, for example, in one flyer that became the bone, in, bone of contention in Rogers Park in uh, 2007, I think um, there was a flyer that was passed around where a woman was walking alone at, uh, in the dark in the neighborhood, and there was this shadow uh, looming over her. I think the text was, are you afraid walking in the neighborhood at night? And so people said that that shadow, that dark shadow indicated that the candidate was insinuating that there was a black resident there who was going to attack that white uh, woman. Of course, uh, white uh, uh, criminals also cast black shadows, um, but uh, people would, you know, would really uh, engage in these semiotic uh, analyses to 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 find out is this a racist campaign and also how can we resist it what mistakes did this candidate make that we can draw on in order to convince people that this is not the way they should be voting right that they should, should not give in to this to this to this temptation of voting on the basis of fear and I found that uh, this seemed to work, at least uh, for a while, for some candidates, that candidates could hold on to office with a not entirely pro-gentrification strategy uh, if they sort of uh, staved off these, these um, contenders who were, who were running on tough on crime campaigns. Yeah, let's turn to that direction a little bit, to the, the social justice advocates and organizations who were the ones who were also known for resisting gentrification as a process in general. Uh, how did they engage in racial claims making? Uh, what were some of their goals? And you, you show how they were not fully able to realize them. What were some of the, the reasons for that? Yeah, so um, I describe a particular group um, of um, social justice activists in chapter five, and this is a group that was formed after a very pro-gentrification alderman was elected in Uptown. In fact, he was the one who ran on this campaign with fear, gangs, crime, and so forth. And so he was very, he was very feared among the anti-gentrification activists. He was a very clear ally of the public safety camp. And so they were very worried about what would be happening now because the prior alderwoman had been their ally. And so they thought that their legacy was essentially under threat. So they were looking for, for an opportunity to push back. And they were, they were quite good at this. So these were seasoned community activists who had seen a lot of battles and who knew how you can make a campaign work. So something that they um, found was that um, the new alderman uh, removed basketball hoops from a small local park uh, because the public safety activists and also the, the police uh, claimed that there was gang recruitment going on in that park. And so they mobilized specifically to save that park for local youth. And I know that they picked this park in particular, not so much because of the importance of basketball or the, the, the this particular park, but because they knew that this was a good 
symbolic opportunity to push back. You can hear, literally see black people being displaced from public spaces. And you can show that there wasn't really very much crime happening in this park at all. That is something that they were able to show. They, they filed the Freedom of Information Act and they found that there was hardly any crime happening in that park. And so they were able to create very effective pressure. They got, uh, they got uh, journalists on their side who wrote a very critical article about it. The alderman then made the, made the mistake, unfortunate from his perspective, uh, that he tried to threaten the journalists into not making this a story about race. So he said, uh, if you make this a story about race, I won't talk to you again. But uh, journalists, good journalists as they are, reported that threat. And then afterwards, um, basically everyone on his side, on, on the alderman side, ran for cover because it was clear that he was going to lose this conflict. And indeed, the Chicago Park District, which is responsible for the basketball hoops, put the basketball hoops back up. And so the anti-gentrification activists there were really able to score a, a symbolic victory that pushed back. And I can say that it had some lasting consequences on the neighborhood. The alderman, after this confrontation, was much more careful, was trying to build more channels of dialogue to the anti-gentrification activists, although that didn't work very well, but he did make some efforts in that direction. Um, basically because it had been shown that if he were perceived to go too far, there would be a group of residents who would be pushing back effectively. So the campaign was successful from that end, um, but it also had some costs, I would say, and I write about those in that chapter there. Um, this was a time when Uptown actually had an unusually high amount of gang violence. And um, because of this conflict, um, in part because of this conflict anyway, the people in the public safety camp and the anti-gentrification camp were so divided from each other, so bitterly divided, that they could not collaborate with each other at all. And so their efforts to reduce violence remained rather ineffective, which is unfortunate because there was um, ceasefire money uh, coming into the neighborhood at that time, you know, ceasefire being this, this anti-violence, uh, um, this violence prevention project where former gang members are hired to serve as violence interrupters. And in Uptown, I think one can say the program didn't work very well because um, the divisions there just, uh, just polarized all the actors uh, in the neighborhood very strongly. So I think this is a clear case of uh, low collective efficacy in, in, uh, you know, in Samson and Roudenbush terms. People just didn't trust each other. They, they didn't think that they could work together across these lines. So that's an a perhaps unintended cost that, that resulted from that too, from, from the successful resistance against gentrification in this case. So let's go back then to the, the positive loitering and the public safety advocates. Um, a fascinating finding is that while these groups were important sites of racial conflict in these neighborhoods, you show how they were also a site of occasional interracial collaboration. Now, this micro-level variation in community activism, I think, is a really cool contribution. Uh, so tell us how these groups uh, navigated racial politics and engaged in racial claims-making, especially considering this uh, variation that you discovered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was fortunate to have um, access to one group in Uptown and one in Rogers Park. 
And as I just mentioned, when we were talking about the previous chapter, Uptown was a highly polarized envi environment when I did fieldwork there. And Rogers Park less so because the electoral politics there were less contested. There hadn't recently been um, a contested case like this, like this basketball court uh, issue that happened in Uptown. And so um, I could see positive loiterers conduct this, um, this public safety work in, in environments that exhibited different levels of racial contestation. And to my surprise, I found that um, despite the fact that in Rogers Park, these um, positive loiterers, I call that group the, the Lakesiders, despite the fact that the Lakesiders were actually operating in a, in a political field that was relatively calm and where collaboration seemed possible, they caused a lot of offense and received uh, were the target of many, many racial challenges because they were engaging in rather aggressive uh, efforts of social control. While in Uptown, the group there, the North Towners were able to bring some black and some white residents together despite this tense environment of polarization. And I would think that it um, reflects uh, different forms of whiteness that uh, emerge out of, uh, um, out, of, uh, out of the social environment. Activists in Uptown, uh, public safety activists in Uptown knew that public safety activism was, was a highly contested thing there. And so if you wanted to do it and um, get by all right, you needed to make efforts to make your initiatives look relatively open-minded and welcoming. And in Rogers Park, people didn't have that sense because there hadn't really been very much racial conflict there recently. And so the group there made no efforts. Instead, they made very aggressive efforts uh, at social control, which, for example, led to these Trayvon Martin shouts that you mentioned at the outset. And this also became then reflected in, um, in uh, people bringing in, with more or less success, uh, African-Americans into these public safety groups. So the group in Uptown was diverse, racially diverse, and became more racially diverse over time. It even drew in a few people from the anti-gentrification camp who became convinced that positive loitering could be a good thing if it's nonviolent and if it's racially diverse. And some, um, I think some very important bridging ties were formed there between uh, communities that were really, in other terms, very, very divided from each other. Um, in Rogers Park, people also tried to join that rather aggressive group, but they were all alienated from the group in some fashion because uh, the group was just very, very resistant to the idea of making any compromises. For example, um, the local ceasefire organization in Rogers Park was interested in working with the positive loiterers there, and um, the community organizer who ran ceasefire was a very he was a, he was a very um, a good community organizer, uh, very experienced. He just suggested to the positive loiterers that they might sometimes be wrong in their attributions of who they consider gang members, because there just aren't that many in that neighborhood. And so he suggested to the positive loiterers, why don't you come with me one day? I'll, I'll introduce you to some local youth. You'll then know them and you know their experience. And next time you're out, you know that those people are not gang members, right? Or that, that certain styles of dress and behavior don't necessarily indicate gang membership. But this is something that that group of positive loiterers was absolutely not interested in. And this became well known throughout the neighborhood after a while so that they essentially became uh, hated by the entire social justice 
camp and uh, yeah, vitriol rained on them whenever they were seen. <laughs> yeah, let's build on this discussion of the group dynamics a little bit. Uh, you found that while these were racial conflicts that you observed in that they obviously revolved around racial divisions and the use of racial neutralization to enact change, uh, they usually did not really feature whites against blacks, not in such a clear cut way. It was while you had blacks and Latin Americans, mostly in the social justice camp, whites were still the majority in their meetings. So you should find how the racial identities of group participants didn't always neatly align with the racial boundaries. So how did you see this uh, play out among different uh, actors in these groups? Yeah, this is something that I struggled with for a long time because um, theories of racism and racial conflict don't really allow for this kind of variation very much. Uh, if we think about the situation that people in these neighborhoods uh, that I'm describing were facing, it's really quite simple. The argument would be that uh, if you're white and you live in one of these neighborhoods, if you're then confronted with uh, street crime and with gang violence, any white liberalism that you may entertain would, would sort of vanish very quickly and your racial interest would come out. So in other words, there isn't really that opportunity. There isn't that possibility built in for white people to uh, participate in struggles against gentrification. And of course, on the other hand, the assumption for African-Americans and Latinos would be that they would resist these types of interventions. Um, but I think this isn't always the case. And um, I'm, I'm very glad that recently people uh, in the American public have become more aware of this because there have been uh, these, these comments on how surprisingly multiracial debates against police brutality and uh, systemic racism are. Um, and I think this is more pronounced now than it has been, but it has also always been the case. It's not necessarily the case that just because you're black, you're anti-police, and just because you're white, you want the police to do everything in their power to marginalize black people. And so uh, in chapter seven, I just take extreme cases um, of people who are white and black who are either fiercely aligned with the police and with the public safety camp or fiercely anti-gentrification um, for both blacks and whites. And I saw this, um, you know, th these were people you could relatively easily find. So I found white residents who lived in relatively dangerous parts of the neighborhoods who were not at all concerned about crime, uh, but instead about gentrification. And then I found uh, a number, especially of African-American women uh, who were very concerned about crime and who thought that their only chance to safely live in this neighborhood, especially with their children, was to work closely with the police. So while generally speaking, we think of this conflict as a black-white conflict, and I'm sure that in many ways uh, it is, um, it isn't that only, uh, and in part because um, intraracial conflict is going to play out. So whites will confront each other over their views on gentrification and on crime, and so will blacks. For example, I have this middle-class uh, contact, uh, Kay, an African-American woman who lives in Rogers Park, uh, and she was frequently called a racist because she would go to community policing meetings. Um, so racial conflict just plays out very broadly, not just between blacks and whites, but also within groups. 
Yeah, I like the uh, approach of using extreme cases to to bring out these points, and you you bring up current events um, as a kind of an example of how we're waking up to this a little bit. And you know, I was reading your book right as the the protests over the George Floyd and Breonna Terra tragedies really erupted, and as we're speaking, are still going on and being discussed. And just in general, it was really easy to see the connections between your findings and of how. Uh, racial claims making works in urban spaces through lenses of crime and gentrification and these current discussions going on. There are a lot of questions going on in cities really around around the country, but around the world over the relationship between municipal law enforcement and black communities and law enforcement's role in cities with race at the center of the conversation. So it's a you know big question here, but but how can you see some of the lessons that you drew from these cases in showing ways that racial marginalization occurs in gentrifying neighborhoods, speaking to some of these larger current discussions. That's a big question, but have yeah. you given any, have you drawn any uh, connections yourself uh, using your own findings to try to make sense of uh, what's being talked about today? Yeah, I I think so. I think I have a I think I have a modest contribution to make there. So, and I think um I think people who have thought about these issues closely will not find this overwhelmingly new, but I think it's important and I I also offer more detail into this line of thinking than there has perhaps been available before. So, um right now the attention is on the police and police departments and I think rightly so. We are talking about whether the police department simply receives too much money, whether there are too many police officers, whether police officers are sent to many events that they eventually could never solve in any satisfactory way, whether police departments have too many people who are aggressive, poorly trained, or even hold racial animus uh, on top of any subconscious bias that they might have. So we're thinking about the police, how to make it better, or even how to abolish the police. Um, but before that, we were uh, b- before George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery brought that debate to the fore. We were also talking about um, these uh, the, these comical characters that that have gone into history through their their funny names like Permit Paddy and Sidewalk Sally. Um, so you know, people who are calling the police. Uh, on African-Americans as they engage in lawful, normal behavior, like barbecuing or uh, walking down the sidewalk or sleeping in a dorm room or whatever it, ha- whatever it may be. The most recent case will be Amy Cooper, the woman in Central Park who called the police because uh, the, the, the black bird watcher uh, asked her to put uh, her dog on a leash and she uh, refused to do that. So I think these cases, this is the angle from which I come. I make the argument in the book that when we think about intensive and aggressive policing, we can't only think about factors from within police departments, but often the police actually have less discretion than we think they do. They typically show up at places because they have been dispatched there. Someone has called 911 and the dispatcher has sent them there. Uh, or uh, a group of residents might have lobbied the police district commander, uh, the alderman might have pushed that a particular park needs to receive more attention from police officers. And I saw all of these conversations and efforts happening in Rogers Park and Uptown. And so many of the confrontations 
with police harassment and with police brutality that people of color are experiencing in the United States uh, are ultimately traceable to people using the police strategically in certain ways. And this is what the public safety activists were doing um, as they were uh, advancing gentrification. Um, I have a story in the book uh, of an African-American man, a veteran actually, who had been stopped by the police uh, as he was looking for parking when he was coming home uh, three times over the last two weeks. Um, and um, the police were deliberately doing that because the police district commander was engaging in a strategy where he was trying to find uh, guns before they could be used. He called that proactive policing. But the cost of that was that whenever anything, even just remotely suspicious was observed, people, and of course, specifically black people would be stopped and controlled. And these kinds of interventions don't come out from nowhere. This was done in this neighborhood because vocal residents, uh, the chamber of commerce, uh, uh, the elected representative were pushing the district commander to do something about it. And so police brutality and harassment are not just factors, are not just forces that come from police officers themselves, but we should also think about how people are using the police such that those things become more likely. I think this is something that my book can show. Yeah, that, that definitely makes a contribution to this, just the larger conversation of uh, race, racial interaction, the everyday politics of race in uh, cities and gentrifying neighborhoods. Uh, so we've taken up a lot of your time already. Uh, I'd like to ask a question to conclude. Um, what are you working on these days uh, since the book came out? What's your next project going to be? Yeah, I have a number of smaller projects. Uh, I, I've been working on um, uh, several projects that look at um, the connection between space and political cleavages in cities. Uh, I have a paper coming out in the Urban Affairs Review uh, that looks at class, race, and other political cleavages in Chicago, Toronto, and London. I actually saw that you have one coming out too. I hope we're in the same uh, edition. Um, but the, uh, specifically in continuation of this agenda that comes out of the book, uh, what I'm working on now is a project that looks at racial claims making more from a content analysis angle. So after writing the book, I was just very curious about whether there's a way for us to figure out um, conditions under which charges of racism and racial challenges uh, more broadly are successful. So for example, uh, if, a, if, a, if a blackface uh, picture of a politician or a corporate leader emerges, what are the factors that determine whether that person will have to step down? What, what, what are the contextual factors? Uh, what, what is the kind of evidence that is required to make that happen? So this will be um, a comparative project where I think more systematically about how racial challenges work and what the conditions of their of their success are. Cool, that's a great project. Thank you for for sharing. And hopefully, when that book comes out, you'll come back on and we'll uh, we'll chat about that. Thank you so much, Jan. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on a great book, and hopefully, we'll see you soon. Fantastic. Thank you, Richard.